Well, good morning. How's everyone? Good. Big day today, right? Matthew chapter 18, that is. We're, yeah, I don't know what you guys were thinking about. We're in Matthew 18, and we're excited. Uh, if you want to go ahead and turn there, go ahead and turn there. Uh, it's going to be important. I recommend maybe getting a Bible in the pew. Um, we're just going to walk through some specific things. Um, if you're new and I haven't met you, my name is Eric. I'd love to get to know you, help you connect to our church out in the courtyard. There's a welcome area. We have a gift, and uh, anyone with a name tag can answer any questions you might have. And so uh, there, there's two things I got to address in the text um, up front so that as we're walking through the text, we're not like, why is that there? What's that doing there? So I'd rather just deal with it up front and quick so that way um, you're like, oh, that's why that's there. So verse 10 of chapter 18, it says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, there is a group of people that think this means you have your own personal guardian angel. Okay? I don't see that in the text that everyone has a personal, specific angel. Two, you don't need a guardian angel. You have a sovereign God, okay? So two, you're not losing anything by not believing that. Three, then what's it getting at in the text? I think it's simply saying that there are angels seated around the throne at the face of God. And what do we know from Scripture? Do humans ever interact with angels? Yes, God will send an angel to have a conversation or to do a work. And I think it's a warning, hey, there are Angels sing the face of God, and you need to know they're ready and there when you mess with his little ones. I think that fits the context because it's a warning, and it fits the context that God cares about his children. That's one. Fair? Yeah, you guys are right. We don't care. Okay, two. Did you notice there's no verse 11? All right? It goes 10, 12, no verse 11. So why is that? Okay. Uh, the, the quick answer is, throughout history, there are groups of manuscripts, or you some call them families of manuscripts. So if you have a King James Bible, you would have verse 11, right? So that's a 1611 manuscript basis, meaning it's based off a certain text. And in there, I don't know if you know this, in the original manuscripts, there's no chapters and there's no numbers. It's just a letter. So somewhere along the way, um, it got added. Maybe a scribe thought it, you know, was a part of Luke, and they were Luke, but they're actually in Matthew, because Jesus did say uh, what's in there. Or, or maybe they added it, they thought something was missing. So you have another group of manuscripts, 1940s, Dead Sea Scrolls. They have thousands of manuscripts, don't have verse 11. So newer translations, don't put it in there, okay? So what does this mean? If you have your Bible, uh, most of you will have a footnote, have a little one that'll say some manuscripts add, verse 11, and then it'll tell you what that says. For the Son of Man came to save the lost. Does Jesus say that elsewhere in the scripture? Yes. So is it anything that disagrees theologically with the Bible? No. And so here's the good news, okay? The the texts of the Bible, the, the manuscripts, there's thousands and thousands of them, and they have the same message, the same way, saying the same thing. And there's no text they found that's like, oh, Judas doesn't exist in this text. Isaiah is not a book. There's no prophecy about Christ. And so you can have your full trustworthiness in the text, okay? And it's the, that verse is in your Bible in other places. It fits it, but they're saying, uh, in the majority of the text, that's not there. And so they didn't want to put it there. 
So that's our three-minute explanation versus our hour-long seminary explanation. Fair? Unless you guys want to stay here another hour. There's nothing going on today, okay? No? Okay, we're good. So I just wanted to get through that because then we're going to walk through this text and I want to talk about it. I want to talk about the heart of what's in this. So I'm going to pray and we're going to jump in. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your word uh, that it speaks to us. It's there to guide us, to help us, um, to help us be more like you. Uh, I pray that we would have just a heart to want to listen, to want to obey, because you love us. And so it's my prayer that we would uh, give you our full focus and attention and energy, that you would speak to us, help us love you and trust us in ways that we don't. And so we just pray you would speak and meet us here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so remember, we're in Matthew, and there's two things going on that you have to continuously remind yourself in the book of Matthew. He is, he is answering two questions. Who is Jesus and what is the kingdom? And as he's explaining that in, in our previous passages, we see he's like, I am the king. I am the son of God. But I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to rise. And they're struggling. They're like, no, you can't do that. Okay, he's like, you're not understanding. I'm God, right? The son of God. So he, he begins to build a metaphor to help them understand. He's like, look, you guys aren't getting this. So maybe if you could just understand this principle, if you could have a childlike faith, if you could just trust me like a child, I don't, I don't want Jesus to go. I don't want him to bear the wrath of God. But I trust that if he says it's necessary, then it's necessary. So he takes that idea and he pushes it forward in the text through saying there's gonna be times when you want to sin. And those sins that you want to commit, they're going to be powerful. And they're, they're, you're going to think to yourself, there's no way that this could be bad. And you need to have that childlike faith. You just need to trust the Father that it's bad for you and you shouldn't do it. So he starts off with warnings. So that's what you see, chapters, or verse 7. Woe, that's a warning. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. Okay, so he says, look, the world... They're on notice for tempting my children to want to sin and not listen to me. So why is that good news? I think sometimes we turn on the news, we freak out. and like, look at all the evil. Look at all the bad things. Um, things that are, are evil, they're calling good. And things that are good, they're calling evil. And we freak out. And it's important, you see, Jesus warns the world, woe to you. And in the Old Testament, we know when there is a woe, there is a judgment. God will judge what he warns, you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to worry about it. He gives that warning, but he goes on. He says, for it's necessary that temptations come. But let's just stop there. Okay, so this, this is very hard. I think in our culture, we, we highlight this type of thinking, um, meaning we want to say that, well, he just said that temptation is necessary so if temptation is necessary, then it's not my fault when I sin. See, God said it had to be there. And so what the Bible is going to be very specific is you never have permission to sin. Why is he saying it's necessary? He's saying it's necessary because as a Christian, you're going to be tempted. And like Christ was tempted, you overcome the temptation and show you have a greater love for the Father than you do of the world and you do of the flesh and of the desires. So it's going to come. It's a part of the design. And instead, what we say is, well, 
if God didn't want me to do this, then he wouldn't have given me this feeling. You see, I'm born this way. Therefore, the behavior I'm demonstrating is necessary because I'm born that way. So when we do that, we blame God for that sin and say, it's God's fault I'm like this and sinning, or we say it's not a sin. Either way, it's bad. And so we're going to want to look at a few texts here. We've got to understand what's the relationship between God and sin, God and temptation, and what's our role in the midst of it. Okay? So let's look at James 1, 3, or 1, 13. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Okay, the Bible is very specific. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what does that mean? When you go back to the Garden of Eden, God did not make Eve sin. Did God know she would sin? Yes. Did God create her with a will and ability to sin? Yes. But did he force her to eat? Is she saying, I don't want to do it? And he's like, nope, you got to do it. You have to do it. No. She chooses to do it, the volition of her will. So God knows it. God created the potential, but he doesn't cause it. Why is that important? We can't blame God for our sin. You can't say, you're making me do this. And I think sometimes in, in, in our world, what we want to say is, it's your fault I'm like this. We want to excuse the sin. There will never be a time in heaven where you get up there and let's say you did something really vile to your spouse or your parents. And you're like, you know what, God? These are the things they were saying to me. And he goes, oh, they said that? Oh, I would have thrown the shoe too. I would have cursed them out right there just like you. I get it. It's not your fault. That conversation is never happening. It's never happening. You were tempted and you executed the desire and you shouldn't have. Okay, so when it says it's necessary, it's necessary for our growth it's necessary to show our affection for Christ over our sin. And it's necessary. Why? Because look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. Okay, let's stop there. Here's what you have to realize. We want to take certain sins and we want to personalize them and say, but this one, I've always thought this way. It's always been hard for me. I've always wanted to do that. And the reality is, God tells everyone no about something. That's why it says it's not common to man. There's no temptation. There's nothing. There's no sin that you want to commit that you don't have the ability to not do it. So God says no to everyone about something. And everyone's accountable to that choice and to that desire and what they do with it. Rest of the verse, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Meaning there's always a way out. There's always a way out. So we can't blame God. He says it's necessary and he gives a warning to the world. Now let's keep working. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So here's, you have kind of two extremes, right? You have one extreme that's like, it's not my fault I have these desires. And it's like, yes, it is. And then you have this other side that's like, whoa, well, then if temptation 
and sin work together, let's just hide in a bubble and not do anything so we're never tempted so we never sin. See, that extreme is bad as well. Why? Well, because we're called to be light in darkness. We're not called to be light in light. And so there's this idea that we have to go into the darkness, be light, and not be overcome by the temptations that it brings and that it offers us. Now, the warning is twofold. This is, this is very important. We have to understand this. The warning is not just for your own personal choices. The warning is also for how your choices affect other people. Because it says, by whom the temptation comes. That's the warning. So it's a warning not just of how do you act, but how do your actions affect other people? In, in, in two senses. In one sense, are you modeling something that's not biblical and you're giving people the idea that God's okay with that behavior? Because they go, well, you're a Christian and you do that, so it must be okay. Or are you tempting them by provoking them? Trying to lead them. And it's like, not my life. It's fun to watch you fall apart. So you know it's bad. But you egg them on. You lead them to the water. You're like, well, they drink it. He's like, woe to you who's the tempter. Now, they still have to give an account that they made the choice. And the third, I would say, is silence. We watch people just walk off the cliff, knowing that's what they're going to do. And we say nothing. So the, the, the woe is not just to the one committing the sin, but it's the one who's tempting or being a part of the temptation of the sin. So there's an accountability there. Um, let me put it this way. If you're a parent, you've heard this phrase, why do you care? It's my life. You guys ever heard that before? It, has, it doesn't affect you. It's my life. Why don't you stop telling me why do you care so much? This is your response. Then when Mom and dad get a divorce. Don't you come crying to us. It's our life and it doesn't affect you. Now you wouldn't do that, but you see what I'm saying? They do affect each other. If parents get divorced, it absolutely affects the kids. So there, there, is, a, there is an effect of our choices. And Jesus warns, he's giving a warning. Don't just watch yours, but watch the effects you have on others. I came to this realization um, the hard way. Uh, I was a youth pastor, my first camp ever. I had junior hires. And uh, I was up there, I was probably like 23 years old. And um, I see one of my friends from college. And in college, I don't know why, Christian colleges, they come up with weird games and do weird things sometimes. And we had this thing where we would, if you weren't protecting your drink, we would try to throw something in your drink and then see if you would drink it, right? And so sometimes it would be like a breadcrumb or paper or french fry, you know, whatever it was. And so I saw my friend's cup and I'm like, it's unprotected. And so I took, I think it was like a crouton, right? Or like a little, you know, crusty bread thing. And I, and I threw it and I missed. And I was like, oh man, what I didn't realize is now an apple, a piece of bread and some spaghetti are all flying towards my friend. Why? Because the junior hires are like, Eric did it. Yeah, let's get him. Right? And I'm like, no, that's just my friend. And they're like, well, you did it, so can't we do it? And I was like, oh, man, my behavior affects other people. They're like, well, if the pastor did it, we're gold. Because when they say, did you read that sign? They're like, well, the pastor did it, so we're good. So I had to, like, apologize to my friend, and I had to realize, like, my actions speak to other people about what the truth is and what I see and perceive the truth to be. And so this warning is really, really deep. It's not just the actions we do, 
but it's the actions that we're saying are allowable and permissible by God because we're his representatives. Okay, now, here's the thing, because he's going to move from the warning to an imperative. But it's important you understand the warning is not just about the action. Okay, look at, I want you to look at James 1, 14 through 15. It says, but each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, again, here's your, mine, our, it's a desire we have. Because later, he's going to jump ahead here a little bit. He's going to say, hey, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, whatever it is that could cause you to sin. Can you cut off your hand and still sin? Absolutely. So it's going beyond the act. It's going to the inside, the heart. 15, then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So when it's giving a warning towards sin, it's not just warning the action, it's warning the desire that's driving the action. And so when you think about why do you turn to a substance to, to numb your feelings, that feeling is either you're trying to hide, you're trying to gain control, lose control, when you find yourself changing your behavior so people will like you, what's the desire? You don't want to be alone. You want to be liked. And so there's a desire that drives the action. And it's important for us to see is part of the warning is identifying the desire. That Jesus is telling them, look, my father realizes that you're going to have insecurities and you're going to have passions and desires and you're going to try to fill them with things that are going to hurt you. And he says, I'm going to warn you that sometimes you just need to trust the Father like a child that these things are bad. And so he gives this great warning to his children. As he's already walked through the Sermon on the Mount, he's warned them, look, rage is bad for you. Vengeance is bad for you. Gossip is bad for you. He's not just, it's not this legalistic don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. It's saying, look, this will harm you. This will harm your relationships. This will harm you and the Father. There's effects in here that you can't see. Um, an example I like to try and to work with, I hope this helps. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the act of abortion, and we'll say it's wrong, which it is. It's murder. And we'll say, don't do it. You shouldn't. But what they don't tell you is the emotional damage that happens to a woman when that happens. Because innately, intrinsically, what happens is there's an acknowledgement of a loss of life that affects her the rest of her life. And it's not that God doesn't forgive her and love her and wipe her clean, white as snow, and beautiful. But there's a pain inside of her that exists. I know women who've been Christians for 30, 40 years that they still cry on the very day every year because they know the loss of life took place. See, there's effects of sin that reign far beyond just the act that we don't fully comprehend and see. And you have a loving father talking to his children, saying, whoa, whoa, you do not know what you're messing with. 
So he gives the warning. Sin is bad. It starts with temptation. Woe. And then after he gives that warning, what does he do? He gives an imperative. Verse 8, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life cripple or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. Now, in one sense, that verse is very straightforward and very simple. It's better to go to heaven with one hand than hell with two. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Now, here's what you have to kind of put into your idea or your understanding. Is he talking about if you go and stub your toe and you say some choice words, should you get rid of all of your furniture so that you never have that opportunity again? No, it's not what he's talking about. He's saying if there's something that you can't stop doing because you love it so much, you need to get rid of it because you love that more than you love the Father, more than you love Christ. And when you read Hebrews and 1 John, it tells us those who go on sinning deliberately, right, habitually, another word, are not of Christ because it means there's a part of me that I will not die to. I love that part more than I love Christ. So he warns if there's anything that drives you in that way, cut it out because it will affect your ability to love me the most with all your heart, soul, and mind, first commandment. So he warns them it's better for you to cut it out than to, to mess with this. It's better for you to take this seriously because it will wreck you. So when you start thinking about addictive behaviors, when you realize the cost of an alcoholic addiction, a gambling addiction, a pornography addiction, whatever it is, you see the cost to your family, the cost to your finances, but you can't stop because you're addicted to it. He says, just cut it out. Completely cut out, whatever it is, because it's better for you to have that cut off than to have all the freedoms and things you need in this life and go straight to hell. That's a loving warning. Okay? So when the Bible speaks about sin, it speaks of it very seriously. And again, it's not legalism. He's not the anti-fun God. He's saying sin harms you. It hurts you. That's why the Bible's very clear. Run from sin. Don't even flirt with sin. Because it hurts you. So that's why you see God use an aggressive nature. Yeah, let's look at Genesis 39. I want you to look at the story of Joseph. So I, just want to, I, want you, I want to walk through with you just an example in the scripture how a godly man deals with sin. So if you know Joseph, he had a lot of brothers, right? He has a dream, he has a coat, and he's going to be big and in charge. They don't like him. They try to kill him. He gets buried. He becomes a slave. So he works his way through uh, being a slave, and he works himself up into a position of power. So he's working for the number one guy in charge in his area. This guy's wife has a huge crush on Joseph, and she wants to have an affair. This is how we pick it up, verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. 
But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. I want you to ask this. Does Joseph know that his sin affects other people? Absolutely. He is not saying, why do you care? He's directly saying, hey, do you realize this is going to affect your husband? The man who's been gracious to me and given me a job? I'm not going to sin against him. So he realizes the abstract connection of his sinful behavior. Nine, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, which he should, because you are his wife. Now watch the second thing. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph cares how it affects the husband. He cares how it affects God. Not to mention it's going to affect the woman and it's going to affect him. But just scripturally, I want you to see that there is a connection. There's seeing, there's consequences, there's damage. There's damage to the relationship of my God who's loved me, protected me, and is faithful to me. He cares about the relationship. He doesn't get into a scorecard and say, well, I've read my Bible, I've prayed, I've tithed, so I probably have some room to sin over here. He's saying, no, 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 I cannot sin against God. 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Verse 11, so this is interesting. He's in a work situation and she's pursuing him and he's running from her. Now watch this, verse 11, but one day, but one day, when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were there in the house. What happened? The accountability was gone. All of a sudden, he finds himself in a dangerous place. There's just her and him, and there's no one to intervene. There's no safety net. There's no caution. So she sees this, and she moves on it. So here you go, verse 12. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. I want you to watch his reaction. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and got out of the house. That's the appropriate response to sin. He ran. He ran. I want you to notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say there's nothing wrong with a man and a woman having a conversation alone. So tell me, how do you really feel about me? Do you think I'm pretty? Do you think I'm strong? He doesn't press into the relationship because he has the moral freedom. I'm not touching her. I'm not committing an affair. I just want to see how far I can go with this. Verse 13 doesn't say, and Joseph spent three hours talking to her alone, and he's one of the strongest men we have ever seen emotionally, spiritually. He doesn't find out. He runs. He absolutely runs. There's no prize in Christianity for how close you can get to sin without sinning. Okay? There's no prize for your child when they say, Mom, I held my hand right up near the stove for 30 minutes and only some of my flesh is burning. But we don't need to go to the hospital. 
You're not like, yes, let's get a, let's get a celebration and get out, you know, let's tell the world how strong our child is. They almost got burned. You don't see that in Scripture. It says when there's sin, you run. And why do you run? Because your relationship with God is important. The consequences of your sin are dangerous. The things you're looking at on a screen impact your brain. They impact your personality. They impact your future marriage. The relationships you participate in with gossip and slander. People find out about those conversations and they get hurt and wounded and they hate Christians and don't want to come to church and read their Bibles and pray because of the things said in conversations that we think are harmless, that no one will ever know. And it's not about going through this right and wrong and there's plenty of things I don't do. It's going back to Joseph. He loved God and he wouldn't do it to God. And if he lacks the power to do it, then you cut it out. Simple but true illustration. Um, in college, I had a roommate, and I'm not picking on Bears fans. He just happened to be a Bears fan, Chicago Bears. And they're in the playoffs, and shocker, the Bears lost. And he gets up, and he just punches a hole right in the door. And we're freaked out. Now, that's not where it stopped. For the next week, he couldn't talk to us, look at us. Everything was tied to that game. He just he couldn't do it. He couldn't talk. He was depressed. He was sad. Everything was wrapped up in, in that game for him. So the next year, we're like, oh, man, it's playoffs. Playoffs. What are we going to do? And we went, hey, man, what, what are you doing today? He's like, oh, playoffs? Yeah, I gave that up. I gave that up. We're like, why? He's like, I don't like who I am. It has a bad effect on me. So we cut it off. Because it was impacting his relationship with people and God in a way that was not profitable. It was something he couldn't walk away from, so he cut it out. See, as Christians, the appropriate response to sin is that we would go to any length to not do it because it reflects how we feel about God and it affects other people. So God in his graciousness gives this warning. This is why in Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, it states this. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. In some translations, it says not even a hint of. He's saying, look, Christians, this is not to be in the conversation when people see you. Jealous of other Christians, immorality, impurities, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. You see, the command is to take sin so serious that you would do whatever it takes to make sure that God is your highest love. This is a loving text. It's not a legalistic text. It's not the anti-fun God text. Here's what I don't understand in our society. When a parent says, don't put your hand on the stove, don't stick the fork in the socket, that's a loving parent. But when God says marriage is between a man and a woman, don't be an alcoholic, don't be greedy, he's intolerant and unloving. Some hypocrisy, isn't it? 
This is why Jesus uses the framework of little children. He says there's gonna be feelings you have to sin and they're gonna be so great and so powerful. And in that moment, when you see no reason why this is a bad thing to do, you, like a child, need to trust your parents, need to trust your father. In the same way, when your parents made you go to sleep and eat things that were healthy, drink water and do things you didn't like, you just trusted them. You need to trust your father. Why is this? Because they're going to get sent out into a world post-crucifixion, and they're going to be tempted by people, and they're going to say, why do you follow a man that was murdered and mocked. They're gonna throw him in jail. They're gonna spit on him and stone him. They're gonna be tempted to not be allegiant to Christ. And he's saying, when you fall in that moment, cut out what is tempting you and trust your father like a child. It is absolutely what's best for you. And so when you come to this text like a loving father trying to save his children, that's much more palatable, it's much more understanding, and it makes a lot more sense. So he gives the warning, he gives the command, and then he gives the encouragement. Verse 10, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven... Their angels always see their face of my father who is in heaven. It's like, hey, don't cause the little ones to stumble. The angels are with the father, right? He warns them. 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? That's incredibly encouraging. Because he's saying, look, you're a sheep, and you're a part of the fold, you're a part of it, but there might be a time when you're chasing that temptation and you start to go try to eat grass in other pastures. He's saying, I will send the good shepherd, Jesus, and he will grab you, it might hurt, yank you, and put you back into the fold. Because sometimes we go astray. Because sometimes we believe our feelings and desires and the temptations of the world because we want to feel loved by the world. We want to feel significant and powerful. We want to feel like we have control. We want to be numb. We want to forget. We want to let loose. We want to make fun of. We want to make ourselves appear better than other people. And those desires sometimes we just can't, can't let go. And this is where John tells us that God tells Christ, all that I give you, Right, and are yours. And then Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, I lose none. Jesus doesn't lose his sheep. This is good news for us. It gives us this balance that we're going to sin, but man, we need to try with everything we have to not sin. Not because there's a grand scorecard and the people who have more pluses get in than minuses. Because you love and trust the Father that the creator of the universe knows the way to live. He knows that he created them male and female. He knows that the greatest thing for you to do is to love and trust him because he knows the consequences of addiction and slander and gossip and abortion. All, all these things are damaging to you. 
I mean, imagine you're, you're getting ready to have surgery for your cancer, and you have cancer of the stomach, and they're saying, hey, we're going to have to remove a lot of parts. And you're like, well, can you just leave the muscles? I've worked really hard for these. And the doctor's like, well, in order to do that, we'd have to leave a part of the cancer. You're like, that's fine, long as I can keep the muscles. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? That's what he's saying. Why keep anything that's going to kill you? Why? Better to go to heaven with one hand than hell with two. It's a loving thing that the Father tells. And in the event that you, the sheep, wander off and you start thinking what you're eating is better than what the shepherd is feeding you, and you start to get close to the edge and you're eating things that are bad for you, He'll come and find you and bring you back. Now, here's the thing. I think sometimes we think, oh, God doesn't care. He doesn't know. He doesn't tell me. He doesn't show me. I think God gets our attention through a lot of ways. When you come to church, one of the ways he gets your attention is through his word. It takes the crook and he whacks us on the head. He says, pay attention. It's a loving shepherd giving you words What's wrong? What's right? And by loving shepherd, I mean Jesus, not me. Okay? Jesus, through his word, teaching us. Sometimes it comes in the form of other Christians saying, hey, you shouldn't do that. That's bad. I've noticed you've changed. I'm worried about you. And then you go home and you watch a movie and it just happens to be your life in a metaphor that speaks to you. But God doesn't care. He's not trying. God, in a multitude of ways, warns us and invites us back to the fold not angrily or not bemoaning. It says here in verse 13 that he rejoices. He rejoices. Why? Because we're moving from pain to obedience. We're moving from death to life. Sin kills. Kills you spiritually. Kills your relationships. There's only Christ that you find life and substance, unconditional love, forgiveness. He brings you back into the fold. And then verse 14, he says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So he finishes that section there with that little ones, children, children, children says that the father doesn't want any of his children to perish. So he sends the shepherd to get them and bring them back into where they should be. In conclusion, just think about this, and then we're going to get to some questions I want us all to think about. Is when you think about your Christianity, there's two ways you can look at it. There's all these things I can't do. And that makes life really boring and hard and not fun. And it makes me look weird to other people. Or you can say, there's all these things that my father said are hurtful and harmful. And it makes me look weird. And people make fun of me. And I think I'm missing out on some fun sometimes. But I'd rather trust the father than ignore the father so that I can entertain my idea of what I think is greener pastures. That's the decision in front of you. 
Because the world will make you think that the grass is greener and who is God to tell you? But as any loving parent, you know, even when your kid is kicking and screaming, when you're telling them to do the right thing, you're like, just trust me. You been there? That's God the Father pressing on this text. Just trust me. There might be some friendships you need to let go of because they are toxic for you and they own you. You might not be able to have a device that gives you access to the internet. Men, you don't need to have friendship with women that aren't your wife. And if you do, put her in the group chat. They couldn't do that back then, but now you can. Loop in your wife. Loop her in. Maybe you shouldn't have Netflix. Maybe you shouldn't watch football like my friend. Well, I think he's recovered now and he can. But there was a stage. There was a good three, four years. He couldn't do it. There's nothing wrong with that. Prioritizing your affections for the Father over the affections and rights of the world. Last thing. We, man, pound on, it's my right. It's my right, my freedom, freedom of speech, my choice. You can't tell me. Rather than using your freedom as permission to sin, you know what else you can do? Use your freedom as permission to not sin. I have this freedom and I will use it to not sin and trust the Father. That freedom cuts both ways. Instead of using this, you know, gavel of freedom to excuse bad behavior, why don't we use that gavel of freedom to be like Christ? Because we trust the Father. Some questions for us to think about. How is it possible that we could tempt other people to sin? This is very important. It's very important because our actions directly or indirectly give permission to other people. Now, if they act on that, that's still, God holds them accountable. They don't get to say, well, Billy did it, so automatically I'm off the hook. No, but he says, woe to those who bring the temptation. So we need to make sure that we watch our actions and how they could affect other people. Two, what are some areas of your life you might need to cut out to help you not sin? And again, don't think of it as legalism. And it doesn't have to be forever. Some people can't have alcohol in their house. Some people shouldn't have social media in their house. Some people maybe need to be on a computer in an open area where other people can watch. Maybe you shouldn't have, fill in the blank. But is there something you at least need to consider? You at least need to consider it because you love Christ and everything's on the table when it comes to Christ. Three, how is the parable of the lost sheep Comforting. One, you are always a sheep. And two, when you go astray, he brings you back. He brings you back. He loves you. And he rejoices over you. Four, how does our personal approach to sin affect others? My hope is that what people would see is that we take sin serious. It breaks our heart. We don't like to do it. We try to correct it. When we're in the wrong, we admit it. When we see something that shouldn't happen, we say, hey, I love you. you sh- that, that's not okay that we're gossiping about that person, that we're watching this movie, whatever it is. 
So often our silence gives permission to the behavior and we call it love. Well, I don't want to be judgmental. Yeah. Our approach to sin says a lot. Five, how do you know if you're taking sin seriously in your life? Do you have any plan of attack at all or do you just kind of haphazardly hope you don't make bad decisions? Or do you have filters and conversation tools and processes and are you thinking, act, are you taking it serious? And say, if I have to, I'll cut off the foot, cut off the, whatever it is, I'll cut it out because I love Christ more and I love my sin. And the last one, how is true freedom found in not sinning? The true freedom is that the world can offer you anything, but it can't control you because you love Christ. That's the power of freedom you see in Paul in prison. They beat him, they stone him, they whip him, they threaten him. And he says, do whatever you want. You can't take Jesus. There's no power that could cause him to change. That's true freedom. Because he's either going to love Christ in prison or he's going to love Christ in heaven. True freedom only offered in Christ. Think of it this way. Not only do you have a father loving you and telling you what to do and not to do, but you also have a savior who takes the wrath of God and says, this is so bad and so serious, I'm going to do this for you in hopes that you'll never want to pursue it again, that rather you would love me and trust me and follow me the rest of your life. That's a God worth loving and serving. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus. Uh, we pray that your words would uh, just illuminate our hearts. We would see this text and be like, man, I have a good father that loves me and a savior who died for me. And we would come to a time of worship ready to sing and celebrate that this God would lay out for us in his word what's painful and harmful and dangerous. And we would celebrate that he would send his son to die for us, that he would send the Holy Spirit to help us. He would send us the church to help guide us. So I pray we would just have a great time of celebration that our God protects us, that our God guides us back into the fold when we go astray. So we just pray you would meet with us and be with us as we celebrate you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.